Powerful story, and I love Claudia's quote, God is not taking us on a walk down a hill. Can we see all of life as an opportunity for growing faith? Our message today is called On Fire for Jesus. Will you pray with me now? Lord God, thank you for this moment in time, this encounter. We pray for uh, this church, God, to continue to grow in our passion for you, that we would be on fire for you. God, give us a word this morning about connecting with you and your spirit, that we would feel on fire for you. Give us a word on how to be encouragers in our, in our schools, in our workplaces, in our homes, that other people would come to find you. God, we love you so much. In your name we pray. Amen. Uh, most of you know that over the summer, my family and I were on sabbatical, and uh, I started my sabbatical on a hike on the Pacific Coast Trail, not Crest Trail, the Pacific Coast Trail on the western shore of Washington, uh, hiking about 25 miles down, ending in La Push. And, you know, I had prepared for that journey. That was day one of sabbatical. Worked to June 30th, July 1, drove out to the coast to start this hike, 25 miles solo. Never really done anything like that. I was feeling quite nervous. I had the maps. I had the backpack. I had the gear. I kind of looked like the newbie. I got to the trailhead. I'm like, I don't, I don't even really know where I'm going, you know, and, and I've all my stuff still has like price tags on it basically and all the preparation had made to this place where I like started down the trail and I'm like everything the maps the preparation the thoughts it all led to this moment of now I just need to walk I just need to walk like the trip isn't something I thought about or dreamed about now it's just a matter and a process of of getting down there making my way a mile through the uh, old growth forest down to the coast taking a left and starting to head south at the end of my first night, I traveled maybe seven or eight miles, and uh, I got to my campsite and kind of figured out that this was the area, in fact, that I was going to spend the night, and uh, I set up camp, and still solo, and, and I built this huge fire, and, and it, it, the fire took me a while to burn, because these are all like, you know, sea salt-coated logs, whatever, but as, as night fell and as the fire burned, it was exhilarating, it was it was this fire, I, I, I had my camera, I took a picture, it was like, I feel so alive. And as the fire burned and the, you know, the waves of the Pacific were crashing and I was taking all this in, a figure emerged from kind of around the point about a mile or two down. I can just see in dusk and I could see this figure starting to walk towards me. I'm like, is it Jesus? You know, is it an angel? And then I'm like, and I'm scared. Because when you're out in nature and someone approaches, sometimes it's like, well, what are their intentions or whatever? And sure enough, as I'm kind of like standing by the fire, the, the figure gets closer and closer and closer. And all of a sudden, there's a stranger at my campsite. He said, I saw your fire and I was cold. Do you mind if I hang out a bit? I said, no. He started telling me his story. He had traveled that day like some crazy amount of miles, like 20 miles himself, and he had from out of state, and, and, and this and that, and as we started to share a story, what about you? Well, I'm a pastor, I'm on sabbatical, huh, I gave up on God long ago. We're having this amazing conversation on the coast around a fire. Now, what happened next? I would love to tell you, and then I said, profess Jesus as Lord. We went down to the ocean, I laid him in the waves, he's here, come on out, come on, no, no. He walked on into the night that night, and I don't know what God will do next in his life. I said it last week, and I'll say it again this week. We don't have to play Jesus for people. We're not the Savior. We don't put hunger into people, and we get to be a part of people encountering the Holy Spirit when we are so on fire for Jesus. But it's not about us, whether people come to salvation or not. We have a part to play in just being faithful. 
And today, as this message kind of comes together, I want you to know that we need to be a church continuing to move towards the light of Christ. We need to be a church that's on the inside out, on fire for Jesus. Remember what Jesus says in John 8, 12. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. In other words, Jesus is saying, if you follow me, I want to live in you in such a way that you will be on fire. Like that you will just be consumed with something going on inside of you and that will draw a crowd. And this is what we're called to, to be people continuing to move towards Christ. It, that's what the church has always been, a, a journey measured by a thousand steps of moving closer and closer and closer to the heart of Christ. In the early church, it was said of, of, the, of the church that every step was a commitment to God and to each other. And so let me just say to you, as a big idea this morning, as a kind of a framing statement, nothing shares Jesus more than your changed life. So burn for him and pray that your transformation will create a movement of other people who are encouraged to see Jesus too. We're going to talk about burning for Jesus and we're going to talk about encouragement today. And the hope is that you feel more aligned with what Jesus said about who you are and that that place and that truth draws you closer to his heart and that you get to be an encourager to the world who desperately needs to see him. So let's start at the beginning here, this movement from blindness to sight. It's the first point of your outline, that, that there's a distortion in our city, that faith is just something that we think about. Currently, about a quarter of U.S. adults, about 27%, now say they think of themselves as spiritual but not religious. That's up eight percentage points in just the last five years. And so we're an increasingly spiritual community, and yet the church continues to get more and more marginalized in people's lives. And so there's this distortion that people look at the church and it's just a group of people that think about faith in such a way. But what the, what the truth is, is that a movement of Christ followers, a movement of people that are walking towards Jesus is a movement of people that move from blindness to sight. That we actually have our lives changed by the fire of Christ living within us. In John 9, 1 through 7, we see this movement here of moving from blindness to sight. There's a lot going on in this text. As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents, and he was born blind. Basically, the disciples are saying is, is God good? Can I trust him with my life? And Jesus' response was like, you're asking the wrong questions. My hope, whether people are born in blindness or spiritual blindness, all of us, is that the works of God would be displayed in us. As long as it's day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one court. While I am in the world, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. And then after saying this, he spits on the ground, he makes mud with saliva, and he puts it on the man's eyes. Now we just pause here, and we can leave the scripture up for just a moment, but this is remarkable, because what this says is Jesus is constantly going to work in a way that is against our, our best instincts. The man is blind, so Jesus makes him doubly blind. Hey, it's almost like Jesus is making fun of him. You who can't see, I'm just going to slap a little mud on your eyes. We're going to do a little facial with my saliva. And it's like, what are you doing, Jesus? This makes no sense to us. But he's doing something visually for his disciples. He's doing something for this man. I came that you would have sight. And I'm not scared to touch you. And I'm not scared to work in a way in which the Pharisees and the rest of the world think is antithetical. I came to encounter you. 
And if we're reading this story, we need to put ourselves into the story. That's my story. That's not just the old story when I used to not be a follower of Jesus. That's my present case story too. I still need Jesus to encounter me and move me from blindness to sight. And then Jesus does this remarkable thing here. Go, he told him, and wash. And so the man went and he washed and he came home seeing. Now this is astounding to me because this is opposite of what we do in a modern evangelical church. We hope people come to a place of belief and then from that place of belief, we hope that people feel sent, not Jesus. Before the healing even encounters, before the man makes a profession of faith, Jesus says, go. And the healing happens on the way. The healing happens on the way. Really, really, really important. It's tough to, to kind of extrapolate. When did the man see? Is it in the going? Is it in the washing? Is it in the coming home? We're not told. We know that he was moved from blindness to sight. There's something we're supposed to see. He's given a call to move from blindness to sight. And he's healed as he, as he goes. In verse 16, he, he claims, he's like, all I know is that I was blind and now I see. And so our claim to credibility in a non-believing world, in your families, in your school, in your workplace, the only thing that people care about is how has he affected your sight? If we're pushing to see Jesus more and hunger for more and be lit up with the fire of Christ, that is our credibility, So Jesus sends him on the mission and then gets to him about belief. Let's pick up again in verse 35 through 41. In verse 35, the Pharisees have thrown the man out. They're they're kind of concentrated on this false binaries and people being in or out of the movement. Remember, he hasn't even really confessed Jesus as Lord yet. We don't know exactly anything other than he can see. And he's having this huge speaking part. Subtext here is interesting. In the Gospel of John, this man who doesn't have a name, just his condition from blind to sight, he in this kind of, he's doing apologetics here, which is a Christian theological term for speaking about Jesus, speaking about that transformation. This man has the longest speaking part in the Gospel of John. This whole interface where he's talking to his parents. He's talking to the people that are doubting him. He's talking to Jesus. He gets this huge part of the Gospel. But look at verse 35 through 41. Jesus heard they'd thrown the man out. Because if you're focused on who's in and who's out, you're going to miss the real transformation that Christ wants to do. And when Jesus found him, he says, do you believe in the Son? Yes, he said. Tell me so I may believe. And Jesus said, you've now seen him. In fact, he's the one speaking with you. And the man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. That is so interesting for me. Because the man was given the mission to move into healing and then later come to belief. And in the modern church, we hope people come to belief and then sent on our mission. Jesus is is, is contradicting that notion. Because we have to be people moving from blindness to sight. We have to be people, like in verse 41, we have to be people humbling ourselves to claim that we are the ones who can't see. The, the, the whole text ends where Jesus says, if you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. He's talking to people that are, that are religious, but now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. Thus, hunger everyone, says Jesus, to see me. The choice is to see me. This man, Lord, I believed and he worshiped him. But for many of us, here's the trick. Transformation is not instantaneous. 
Oh, Scott, you say, you know, on fire for Jesus, how I just wish I could. Have you ever started a bonfire with gasoline? It's exhilarating, right? Anyone else? It's great. Light it up, stand far enough back, and then you throw, oof. I mean, you can hear it. You can see it. It's amazing. But certain things happen. If the conditions aren't right for the brush to burn, is anyone, you, 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 poof, but it, it burns out sometimes, right? Because the fuel burns off without actually lighting the stuff that's meant to catch flame. For many of us in the room, we hunger to be on fire for Jesus, but our transformation takes time. And so there's this notion of grace that has to wrap this whole process. We're called from moving from blind to to sight. Like that's happened for me when I was 17 years old where I said, Jesus, I don't know you and I've judged you the wrong way and I so want you to come into my life. And, And in that moment, I became filled with the Holy Spirit. I became a follower of Jesus. But then the rest of my life, I'm like Paul saying, I still need to see I still want to hunger. I still want to burn. It's not just that old decision. Each and every day I'm called into deeper transformation. Transformation can often take time. Here in our first block of worship, we sang Amazing Grace. We know the story, many of us, about John Newton, the the writer of the hymn. John Newton, it's an amazing story. Amazing. At 11, he joined the Royal Navy in England, and then he deserted. And he got captured. For a while, he was a slave in another country. And then he got sold by the Navy to a captain of a slave trading ship. On the slave trading ship, John Newton, as a young man, gained notoriety for being the most profane and foul men the captain had ever met. In fact, he had a nickname, John Newton did, on his slave ship. He was the great blasphemer, like someone that blasphemed against God. It's amazing. See, Newton's mom had raised him around the church. She had prayed over him and introduced him to scripture. And Newton said, I was interested in God. I was more interested in a life of sin. And all that changed for Newton when he was in 1748, March 21. He was on the slave trading boat, the Greyhound, on the North Atlantic, on the coast of Ireland. And, and the boat was going down. That nothing like a storm to shake us up, right? It's nothing like a storm to say, whoa, maybe, I'm, maybe I really am blind. So Newton was this young man, profane, hated God, and then the storm is raging. This is a painting of the Greyhound, and he and another guy bailed all through the night. They literally strapped themselves to the, to the mast of the ship at one point because they figured the boat was going down, and they wanted to hold onto a piece of wood to drift. And so he's, he's fearing for his life. He takes night shift. The other men try to get some sleep. He's, he, he can't see. He's blind. And on that night... He said, something changed in me. I cried out to God. I felt like God sla- saved me. It was, it was amazing grace, 1748. I love it. I'm in. But here's what happened. He continued to trade slaves till 1755. Well, how, how does that happen? How does a man who comes to amazing grace continue to wrestle with God at night? He was studying God and prayer and scripture and yet trading slaves by day. Well, this just points to the fact that he's human, and transformation takes time. And 
God would continue to just grow in him and light him on fire. And eventually he would give up trading slaves. He would come to a new conviction. He became ordained in 1764. He writes the song in 1779. He, he later goes on to, 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 to be a pastor and to write hundreds of hymns. Later in life, he was a pastor in England and a young man named Wilbur Wilberforce went to his church. Wilberforce becomes on fire against the profane amount of racism in, the, in their culture. And, and ends up leading change to vote against uh, uh, slavery in England. But I ask you this question. When did he get in to the family of faith? Was it the night of the storm? Was it when he stopped trading slaves? Because we know racism is just abysmal to the heart of God. Was it when he was, became a pastor? Like, this is what's tricky. This is why we must be a church of radical and amazing grace This has been a highlight of this church for over 100 years, way bigger than any preacher, staff person initiative that for over 100 years they said, this church, Bethany, has an ethos of grace because we know transformation takes time and we're called to be moving people closer and closer to the heart of God. And that's the second point of our outline, that change for most happens as we move towards Jesus. Transformation takes time. We're called to both be saved, Jesus, I want you to live in me, and sanctified. I want to look more and more and more like you. I want to be on fire for you. So change happens for most as we move towards Christ. I've already said it. I'll say it again. If there's one thing we learn in John 9, that our transformation becomes our witness, that people don't care about what... You think they care about how you follow being on fire for Christ. And so this man in John 9 becomes to witness for Jesus because he has a changed life. So our changed life is our, is our witness. But for most of us in the room, we're in the middle of a miracle. We're in the middle of a great transformation. It's like very few of us woke up this morning like, wow, today I am closer to the heart of God than I was yesterday. In fact, if there's one thing I see, there's a propensity of shame in the church. Many of you would say, I think I might be further away from God because I yelled at my kids coming to church or something in my heart doesn't feel right. Like we can constantly hear the enemy in our ears speaking words of shame and self-condemnation. We are meant to be fired up for Christ each and every day on this journey for him. But there's another distortion in the church that I want to name. If, if this first distortion was faith is just something that lives in our head, and that's why non-believing people aren't that interested in Christianity, there's another distortion we need to name. The people that aren't part of the Christian church see Christians as having a lack of humility. That for Christians, many of us, we feel like we're, we're in. We're, we're insiders so if somebody's going to speak about moving from blindness to sight, we're kind of thinking about that person in our neighborhood that's really hard to love because she's a grouch, right? Or the person in my van pool, that person's profane or, you know. But we need to be a church that really humbles to be on fire for Christ that happens from a posture of humility. It's our lack of humility that for many it's damning us in the eyes of the city, Paul said in Galatians 1, 15, 16, when God who set me apart from my mother's womb called me by his grace, he was, reve- he was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles. So it's as Jesus is formed in us that he takes fire in us that our preaching flows out of. In other words, your life speaks. We've been watching all these videos about transformation. If I said, hey, good news, we're gonna come and we're filming, we're filming a video of your life this week. Like, me? Yeah. Like, 
what is the video your life is telling? Not of perfection, but of movement. Movement. Change happens as we move towards Christ. I just want to say it really clear. Where do we get that power? Is it like more discipline, more strength, more giving? No, no, it's more Jesus. And so when we see Christ, when we hunger for him, that's the fire that transforms us. God's not looking for you to check all the boxes of your theological correctness. He's not looking for you to, to, to have, you know, this, this perfect track record. He's just looking for the hungry ones. He's looking for those that want to burn for him. Like, we'll go to the Sounders game today. 70,000 fans. And I'm like, hmm, I, I appreciate the game of soccer. I'm watching it. It's something that lives in my head. It's, no, it's, I mean, these people will be going nuts. Like, they're on fire. Like, let's make our worship services like that. Let's make our gatherings like that. Let's just be fired up where people come in like, man, I don't know if I'm, I don't even like this game. or I'm not sure what I think about this person, but they are fired up because the passion in which we encounter Christ, the more and more we move from blindness to sight. Man, I go, when I'm close to Jesus, the last thing I'm doing is walking out of that prayer time and judging other people. No, the closer I get to Jesus, I want other people to share that fire too. And that, so seeing Christ is that fire which transforms us. And there is this distortion that internally we struggle to see our own blindness. The very notion of blind spots means I will struggle to see them, this alone. It's why we need each other. I can't see my own racism until I'm friends with you. I can't see my own sexism until I have a woman express Christ and I think she does it differently and often better than me. I can't see my own judgment, my, my, own, my own homophobia, my own hatred towards others, my, my judgment. Like, I need you to show me that stuff. And as, we sh- as you show me that stuff and I show you stuff, like, God can move us collectively as a church closer and closer to his heart. So ask to see Christ formed in you and make room for others to approach Christ too. There's this whole thing in John 9 where they're interviewing the guy, verse 24 through 34. They bring the guy up like, what happened? You give glory to God by telling the truth. They said, we know this man is a sinner talking about Jesus. And so this man, this nameless evangelist on fire for God says, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind but now I see. And so may you burn for Jesus and may you find pathways and invitations to bring others along with you. The, the religious in this text, like they're so hung up with the, you know, kind of like check boxes of like, oh, he broke Sabbath or he's doing it differently than the law of Moses that they can't actually encounter Christ. But we must continue to invite and create pathways for other people to see Christ. Like, if you think about it, if there, was the, if there was this like false dichotomy or a false binary, perhaps, like let's say the church in John Newton's days, like anyone involved in the trading business of slaves, we know this is outside of God's heart. Philemon, this whole book, is this countercultural book written 2,000 years ago, embedded in the New Testament, where a, a slave, Onesimus, was to be set free. We know God hates racial division. But had the church, when John Newton, this young, profane sea captain, had they been like, well, anyone that's not, you know, anyone that's involved in the slave trade, you're not welcome into the church. We would not have amazing grace. 
But luckily, this, this John Newton had a mother that spoke Jesus over him. He had people of grace in his life that continued to create pathways of invitation. I love it that we would be a church of amazing grace. And to this, I would like to kind of, for some of you, you know this. Others of you, this might be a new teaching. I want to just teach you kind of a, a, a framework for how do we do this? How do we know that change happens most we move towards Christ? How do, we, how do we kind of move towards Christ as a church? And there's this theological framework that this missiologist and cultural anthropologist, this guy named Paul Hebert, wrote in the 70s um, called Bounded Sets and Centered Set. It's called Centered Set Theology. And basically what it is is that we have an image here that a bounded set is a static set. The people that are either in the faith or they're out of the faith. That's a bounded set. There's a, you know, it's static. There's not going to be change. So if we use this towards Christ, we'd say the people that say the sinner's prayer, you know, they're in, everyone else is out. And the church oftentimes has laid other things into this bounded set framework. You know, people's view on, you know, doctrine, people's view on, you know, certain you know, who's able to preach or not, or end times, or communion. Like the church is constantly, you know, kind of made this in or out framework. But Hebert, and then later Frost and Hirsch in their book about, uh, about missional uh, Christology, they said instead of a bounded set, which is static, what if we had a more dynamic set, which was a centered set? So this is what I want to kind of encourage you to see is this centered set theology that may encourage you as you're moving towards Christ. In a centered set theology, you're less defined by who's in or out, and more defined by people's proximity to the cross. And so in centered set theology, I love this teaching because centered set theology says that certainly there will be people out here that are way far away from outside God, but what we're encouraging is everyone to move towards Jesus. We're trying to find pathways and participation that as many people as possible wouldn't feel like an outsider. They feel like they're an insider because Jesus is constantly calling people to faith in him. The man, it, read it in John 9. Once the man was thrown out of the gathering, that's where Jesus found him, outside of the group. Jesus loves to tear down this false binary of in or out and he's constantly calling people into worship of him, being on fire for him. Now, Frost and Hirsch are kind of Christian guys in the church. I bet you haven't read them. No, you know, no need to. Let me read and just preach it to you. But Frost and Hirsch, they took this another level, and they said um, they kind of think of it as ranchers uh, with fences or, or a center point. And, and what they said in their book, which was really interesting, kind of talking about a church, uh, uh, this is called like a new Christology, a new essence of Christ at the center point. What Frost and Hirsch said is they said on a big ranch, you have fence lines, uh, sorry, small ranch, you have fence lines where, you know, the cattle are in the fence. But an interesting thing, any of you that have raised cattle know, cows love to hang out where? They love to hang out at the fence lines. Like we had cows growing up and those darn cows, I hated them because not only did they hang out at the fence lines, they were constantly busting through the fence lines. It, always. I spent, you know, hours and hours of my childhood chasing cows down the road. They, didn't, they wanted nothing to do with our property, Right. But what Frost and Hirsch said, that on really big ranches, where like thousands and thousands of acres, fence lines disappear from a cost factor, but they put wells in the middle. They put a salt lick in the middle, and they drill a really deep well, and they know that the cattle won't go too far from what feeds them. Okay, now I'm starting to kind of preach, because there's something I want you to pick up on. What Frost and Hurst said is a church with a deep well in the middle, with a salt lick in the middle, with Jesus in the middle. When we say, 
absolutely, Jesus is the center point. Not our alignment on a specific issue. In or out, we know there are people here that may be outside of what Jesus is doing, but we're going to call more and more and more people into the middle point of Jesus. We have a deep well that we think when people encounter Jesus on fire in me, they'll want to be on fire for Jesus too. We're done trying to kind of force people in or out. We're just calling all people to worship of Jesus. It's about a deep well, Christ at the center. Man, I tell you about my cows growing up, we also had llamas. And people are like, wow, that's a really interesting childhood. And if only you knew. But for a season of life, we had llamas. Now, the llamas kind of got old and they didn't really do what we thought they would do as far as like mate and sell them and whatever, different sermon for a different day. Um, But there was one llama that outlived the rest. His name was Mark. Mark the llama. Lived on our property. And the older and older Mark got, we didn't even fence him in anymore. Like, there was no point. Because Mark had this amazing personality, and he never went too far from relationships. We'd see him down on the beach, at times literally, this llama, like staring out at the ocean, like, what is he thinking? (laughs) The neighbors would decorate him with Christmas lights. Like, he was... Like, where we grew up, like, people weren't all that close with their neighbors, but Mark could really bind people together, and he never went too far from where his food and his drink was. When Mark passed, neighbors mourned. So I want to be a church like that. I want to be a church that just says, let's, let's just be lit on fire for Jesus and inviting people to worship him and knowing that God will work on our hearts. And as we approach the throne of grace, God wants to shape us. As we approach the throne of grace, things that are, are a distraction from Jesus or blocking the Spirit's work in us, Jesus will convict us of. He'll convict in, in relationship. But let's find more and more and more pathways to participation. This is a sentence set theology. In order that we would encourage all to move towards Jesus. And this is where we just have a final word for you. I want to encourage you. Like there's a kind of a sub-question. How does the church proclaim Christ in a divisive era? How do we do that? Encouragement. Encouragement. Encouragement is what Jesus offers in John 9. Encouragement from the French word encourager, to make strong. Encouragement, which means the act of stimulating development of activity or belief in one another. Encouragement, which literally means to place courage into another. Like, can we be a church encouraging people to find Christ? 1 Thessalonians 5, 9 through 11, For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we're awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, Paul writes, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. And so Paul is saying, pay attention I'm going to show you what this looked like. Encourage people. Place courage inside of them. We live in dangerous times to people's faith. But if you want to to know the good news and share the good news of Jesus, inviting people to be more and more like Christ, it's through the love and grace of the person of Jesus Christ. And so pay attention to Christ and burn for him and encourage everyone around you to see Jesus too. I want to give you a specific task this week. I want you to specifically encourage one person. Somebody you work with, somebody in your home, you're going to do it by text or phone call or face-to-face. Encourage them and watch what happens in their journey. Encourage others, Paul says, just as you are already doing. And so may we be a church 
like Moses on holy ground, when God encountered him and it said he didn't turn away, and, and he shows curiosity, he's moving towards God. And in the Moses story, God kind of lights him on fire and passion. God gives him a mission statement. Go and make disciples. Lead my people to freedom. Encourage others to do it too. Many, many, many of us, I think one of the things that's really killing our faith right now and our encouragement is a sense of apathy and a sense of shame. Many of us are just feeling, man, I don't feel on fire at all, Scott. I just I so want that to be true. Years ago, Sophie Scholl wrote this. I wanted to share this quote with you as an encouragement. Sophie Scholl, in the midst of World War II, said this. She said, the real damage is done by millions who just want to survive. The honest men who just want to be left in peace. Those who don't want their little lives disturbed by anything bigger than themselves. Those with no sides and no causes. Those who won't take measure of their own strength for fear of antagonizing their own weakness. Those who don't like to make waves or enemies. Those who freedom, honor, truth, and principles are only literature. Those who live small, mate small, die small. It's the reductionist approach to life. If you'll keep it small, you'll keep it under control. If you don't make any noise, the boogeyman won't find you. But it's an illusion because they die too. Those people who roll up their spirits into tiny little balls so as to be safe. Safe from what? Life is always on the edge of death. Narrow streets lead to the same place as wide avenues. And a little candle burns itself out just like a flaming torch does. I choose my own way to burn. And so like the evangelist John Wesley said, in Christ, light yourself on fire with passion and people will come from miles to watch you burn. May you burn for Christ. May you encounter him in such a deep and profound ways that others feel encouraged to seek him too and find pathways to encourage others. I told you about the beginning of my sabbatical and the end of my sabbatical, the last day of September, I drove to the end of Mount Baker Highway. I took a hike on a thing called the Chain Lakes Trail. It was um, awesome, beautiful, and as I set out on the hike, it's... um, it's, you know, encouraging, and I'm listening stuff, and I'm, like, kind of half running, and I'm just pumped up, and some people are hiking at the opposite direction, so the first mile, I'm like, I'm going to encourage people. I had actually heard a really encouraging message from a pastor I listened to. He's like, encourage, 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 so I'm, like, pumped up, like, awesome day, right, and people are coming my way, and I'm like, you're doing a great job. There was, like, I got about a mile and a half in, and there was this couple, and the guy was in front, and he was scowling, something going on. The woman's in back trying to keep up. She looked really discouraged, and I looked her in the eye, and I said, you're doing a great job. I get to the midway of the trail, and I'm like, at this point, I'm like, do I turn back? Do I continue? I'm getting a little tired, but no, I'll press on. And then I get to, like, this next image, and I realize that I'm, like, almost halfway still to go. The day is getting on. It's a beautiful view. How I felt when I snapped this was discouraged and tired. And so I kept going, and I was fighting for courage, and I was praying to God. And then I get to this final stairway where I just am out of gas. And that same woman who I saw earlier, I'm like, this is the, this is the literal point. I have to get up to the parking lot. I have to get home. I'm like, this was a stupid day. You know, like those voices in your head. And I'm like heading up this stairway, and that woman shows up from earlier. And she looks at me, and she says, you're doing a great job. I felt stronger. I felt courage. Man, the faith is a gift. Seize it. Let it burn in you. And may you encourage people around you to seek Jesus too. 
And if we become a community like that, creating a center point to Christ, we begin to fuel each other's journeys towards him, his glory and us. So may you burn and may you encourage others to do the same. Let's pray now. Jesus, thank you so much for this church and this time and place. We love you so much. You've been so good to us. We pray for the people in the room that need encouragement this morning, God, that you would light them on fire. And we celebrate those that are in places of deep joy and satisfaction in your spirit. May they continue to feel called to help others see you too. We want to burn for you, God. We love you so much. In your name we pray. Amen. Will you stand with us as we close in response?